We are in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. This morning, we're going to go through a whole chapter. We haven't done that in a while. Um, but it's still, it's a great chapter. It's a magnificent chapter. Um, we talked about this before. Uh, the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul is the teacher. He's the teacher. And we see in 2 Corinthians, he's the pastor. 2 Corinthians, like no other book, it reveals to us the heart of this man that lived 2,000 years ago. How awesome is that? To be able to peek back 2,000 years ago through God's holy inspired word and through Paul the apostle writing this to see his heart, to see his emotions. It's, it's, an, it's an amazing book. I titled this chapter, I titled my message, um, A Man Changed by Grace. Now, question for you guys. How many of y'all had a good high school experience, good middle school, high school experience. That's good, that's good. I didn't. I did not. I stayed in trouble throughout my middle school and high school years. It started off in the eighth grade. In the eighth grade, I got expelled. I got expelled for drugs. Um, it, took one, it took three high schools to get me through my high school education because of all the trouble I got into as a teenager. I didn't get saved until I was 21. I went to uh, Swansea High School, uh, the ninth grade. I went to Chapin High School, 10th and 11th. And finally, Irmo finished me off my senior year of high school. But I got into a lot of trouble. I did, I'll just be honest with you. I got into a lot of trouble. Got into a lot of trouble with the law. Uh, got into a lot of trouble with uh, my parents, with the school. I was a troublemaker. And throughout the whole entire time of just being, being bad, I would come home and my mom and dad would give me that lecture. They would give me that tough talk. Mom and dad, I just want to ask you this. Have you ever had to give your children that tough talk, that, that difficult, challenging talk, you know, where, where you pour your heart out and, and you share with them, hey, I don't want you to wreck your life. I don't want you to mess things up. I want you to make good choices. I want you to do the right thing. You ever had those conversations? Maybe if you don't have children, maybe you've had it with a friend or a loved one or a spouse or someone in your family where you say you try to reason with them and you try to get them to see the light. Well, my friend, that is what the Apostle Paul is doing in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. We see a man that has been transformed, and now he's talking to the church, and he's trying to reason with them, and he's trying to, he's pouring his heart out. And, and what, we do, what we see really in this passage, as you go through this, think about it, look at it this way. This passage, we see a man with the heart of the Father inside of him, the heart of God inside of him. This is what it looks like when you have been transformed by grace and you're trying to help other people. He's, he's been transformed by grace. Uh, he's been transformed by Calvary. And the, and the sacrifice that Jesus made at the cross, Paul understands it. He gets it. It impacts him. He understands the holiness of God. He understands that God is holy. And God expects his people to live in holiness, to live in righteousness. And they're not, based on what we saw in 1 Corinthians. Um, there's a before and after Paul. 
in, in the New Testament. The before Paul, he's the Hebrew of Hebrews. He's a Pharisee. He hated Christianity. Now, as we write this and you think about who's penned this page, think about this, is, this was Saul. This was the one that gave wholehearted approval at the bashing in of Stephen's head at the stoning of Stephen in the book of Acts. Then he has the Damascus Road experience. He gets radically saved. Everything changes when you become a Christian. When you become a follower of Jesus, when you become a disciple of Jesus, everything changes. And now he goes from this uh, Jesus-hating, Christian-hating, religious man to now he's consumed with Christ. He's consumed with a passion for Jesus. And Paul, we see in the book of Acts, he's consumed with one thing, and that's taking the gospel to the Gentile nations through his three missionary journeys and his visit to Rome. That was what drove him. It was inside of him. He was a man changed by grace. My question for you this morning, before we get into our text, is have you been changed by grace? Have you opened your heart to him and let him transform your life? He will do it. We're not talking about having religion. We're not talking about steeples. We're talking about an inward heart change. An inward heart change where God, by his Holy Spirit, works in you. You've got to have it. You've got to have it. If, if you don't, all this won't make sense. But once your heart's been changed, you'll see what Paul sees. Let's pray, then we'll get into it. Father God in heaven, thank you, Lord, for your word. Father, as we dive into 2 Corinthians chapter 2 this morning, I pray, Lord, that you just teach us. We're, we're surrounded now, Lord God. We're, we, we've opened your word and speak to our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I always find it fascinating, you know, whether you're in a Bible study or you're at church, when the Bible is open, God speaks. The Bible opened in your lap, you're sitting down looking at the pages, God is speaking to you. He is speaking to us. So let's see what he says to us this morning through the Apostle Paul. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1. But I determined this for my sake, that I would not come to you in sorrow again. For if I cause you sorrow, who then makes me glad but the one whom I made sorrowful? This is the very thing I wrote to you, so that when I came, I would not have sorrow from those who ought to make me rejoice, having confidence in you all that my joy would be the joy of you all. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears, not so that you would be made sorrowful, that you might know the love which I specially, which I have especially for you. He's, he's like my parents when they called me home and said, David, we've got to sit down and talk. You're going to wreck your life. You need to make the right decisions. It's like a, a loving parent pouring out their heart to their child, saying, please, do the right thing. Do the right thing. It brings... A parent sorrow and anguish when they see their child or they see a loved one making poor decisions, making wrong decisions. In these first four verses, in each verse, the Apostle Paul uses the word sorrow. has two meanings. The first meaning of sorrow in this passage is Paul's sorrow. Paul had sorrow. Why do you have sorrow? Because they were tolerating sin. They were tolerating sin. We remember from our study through 1 Corinthians that they, uh, they were, he was dealing with heresy. He was dealing with sexual immorality. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, 
the, the dude had his father's wife. Incest. They were dealing with legalism. They were dealing with lawsuits. And it tore Paul up. It tore Paul up to see the church at Corinth doing the things they were doing. And the only thing I can say to you today to bring reference to this is imagine your child. Imagine your child making very bad decisions and wrecking their life. And imagine you pouring your heart out to your child. That's what it was like for the Apostle Paul. It tore his up. This was not a holier-than-thou attitude. He wasn't sitting high and mighty and, and pointing his finger and saying, and wagging his finger. Look at verse 4. He says, For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears. Does that sound like a holier-than-thou attitude? No. No. This is, this is the heart of the Father. The heart of of the fa- of Father God the, and, and, and the heart of the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of Paul. You know, we should grieve over sin. We should grieve over sin. When we see, we ourselves fall into sin, or we see our brothers and sisters fall into sin, it should grieve us. Because here's the deal. When a, when a believer sins, here's what it does. It wrecks the plans that God has for your life. It, 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 th- it, throws, a monk, it, th- it throws a It throws a wrench in this in the wheel stokes. It, it, it messes things up. It wrecks people's lives. And God commands us to be holy, to be separate from the world, to live separate from sin. The second sorrow in these four verses here is, is the sorrow that the Apostle Paul wanted them to have. Paul was sorrowed in his heart over their compromise, but the second one was the, the sorrow that he wanted them to have. And that sorrow is called repentance. It's called repentance. The word repentance means to, to apologize and turn away. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, he says, uh, we're going to get into this where he, they, they talk about a, a good repentance and a bad repentance. You want to have the good repentance. 2 Corinthians seven ten. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. The sorrow of the world is this. I'm sorry I got caught. I'm sorry I got caught. That's the the repentance of the world. That's the repentance you don't want to have. The repentance you you do want to have is Psalms 51. God, against you and you alone have I done this evil in in your sight. And against you and you alone I repent and turn away. It It was the sorrow and the repentance that King David had after he slept with Bathsheba, and he wrote that amazing repentance psalms in Psalms 51. Our repentance has got to be vertical. And that's what Paul wanted. Paul, Paul's not, he's, he's more concerned about their relationship with God than, than he is with the, than his relationship with them. Because he wanted them to exercise repentance. What drove Paul in this sorrow? The same thing that drives you when you have that tough talk with your children love love our love for people our love for our children the motivation behind the sorrow look at the end of verse four but that you might know the love which i have especially for you the apostle paul he loved the corinthians they were his joy he cared for them now check this out this ain't some sentimental love this is real love that the apostle paul had from this is christian love this is not a pampering love. This is a perfecting love. This is a perfecting love that says, I want the very best for you. 
Mom and Dad, can you relate? That's real love. It's, it's not some pampering, petting a dog love. It's a son, daughter, I want the very best for you. And I'm going I'm, I'm to do whatever it takes to help you get where you need to be and to get you to help you to make the right decisions. That's this real love that Paul had for them. This is the heart of a shepherd. This is the heart of a leader. This is the heart of one who is a discipler. He loves and cares and does, for, does whatever it takes for the body of Christ. This is the heart. The big picture, as you see in verses 1 through 4, is we see God at work in the, in the heart of the Apostle Paul. A man changed by grace. When you're changed by grace, it changes everything. And you have a compassion and a passion and a compassion for the things of God and for the body of Christ. You want to help people. You want to help people, and you want to build the kingdom. And when you see people that you're friends with uh, in your church, in your family, you want to help them. You want to build the kingdom in them. You want to love them. The big picture, again, a man changed by grace. Now, verses, let's look at verses 5 through 11. In verses 5 through 11, um, he answers a big question from 1 Corinthians. Remember back 1 Corinthians chapter 5, what happened? There was a dude sleeping with his father's wife. And Paul was upset with the church because they weren't sorrowful over it. And he tells them, he says, you've got to enforce church discipline on this guy. Actually, in, in chapter, uh, verse 5 of that chapter, he says, you need to deliver him, over for, deliver him over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Basically what he meant by that, his sin was so grievous and so out of control, he says, you've got to take this brother and you've got to remove him from the church. You've got to, 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 to remove him. So the question is, back in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, it just ends with Paul giving instruction to exercise church discipline and to remove him from the body. What happened to him? Would you like to know? It, it, it tells us right here. Verse 5. But if any has caused sorrow, he has caused sorrow. Talking about the man, not to me, but in some degree, in order not to say too much, but to all of you. He had caused sorrow. The man's sin was infecting the body of Christ there. And therefore, the Apostle Paul instructs them to implement church discipline. Notice verse 6. Verse 6. Paul says, Sufficient for such a one is the punishment which was inflicted by the majority. According to verse 6 right here, it, it implies that they did what they were supposed to do, that they laid the wood, they laid the hammer on this grievous sin that he wouldn't repent of, and they did what Paul said, and they removed him from the church. And the first word in verse 6 says, it says, it was what? Sufficient. It was sufficient. In other words, it did the job. He repented. He came to his senses. It's kind of like when that parent is talking to that child and finally the, child, the, the, the son or daughter gets it. Ah, I see the, I see the light. I got it. It, was, it says it was sufficient. It did his job. He repented. Now, here is where I believe the church misses the mark when it comes to the area of church discipline. It doesn't end there. 
when church discipline has to be dealt with and done, it, it, it doesn't stop with just excommunicating or removing the person from the fellowship. Part one, there's a part two of this person that's been, that you've exercised church discipline against. There's a part two. Let's look at it here. Verse seven. So that on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Wherefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. How do we restore someone who's fallen from grace? How do you restore a person that was in a, that's in a grievous sin, a grievous rebellion, church, church discipline, or he's either challenged, he's confronted in Matthew chapter 18, or he's removed from the church, and he repents what do you do then? What do you do with the believer then? The same thing that God does to us. You show them grace. How do you restore someone? Number one, four, four things you do after a person has, um, after a person has repented. Four, first, four things you do according to verses 7 and 8 right there. Number one, you forgive them. You forgive them. You show them grace. Show them grace. God is a forgiving God. God is a forgiving God. He's a God of reconciliation. And he forgives. And we should do the same when that brother or sister repents. We, 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 we show them uh, grace by exercising forgiveness. Number two, it says there in verse seven, it says uh, you should rather forgive, and then it says comfort him. That word comfort means to come alongside Help him. Discipleship. Counseling. Help that brother. You know, we're, we're in this fight together. We're in this battle together. And Alex has struggles that she goes through. Robert has issues he goes through. I have issues I go through. And the only way that we can make things better and allow God to work in our life is through discipleship through counseling, through, um, it, says, it says comfort him. That word comfort means to come alongside. We come alongside that brother or sister, and we help them build their life. We help them build their life. We don't throw them under the bus, but we, we restore them. We restore them. God is in the business of reconciliation and restoring lives. Well, guess what? We should be also. Amen? Amen. So, number one, forgive. Number two, comfort him. Uh, number three, Reaffirm your love for him. We care. We care for people. And whatever you do, don't hang it over their head. Don't hang it over their head. Don't, don't, don't keep reminding them of their, of their failure. You know what? I've, I've examined all ten of the Ten Commandments. And guess what? Pastor David is guilty of every single one. You say, Pastor David, you've murdered someone? The Sixth Commandment? Jesus said, if you hate your brother without cause... You're guilty of murder. Have you been unfaithful to your wife? The seventh commandment, shall not commit adultery? No, I haven't been unfaithful to my wife. But Jesus said, Jesus said, he who looks with lustful thoughts commits adultery in his heart. And if we're honest with ourselves, we're all guilty. We're all guilty before God of breaking sins. Who are we to judge another that God has forgiven? You know, all we're, what we're doing is 
we are exercising grace and forgiveness and love and restoration, not of our own will, but of what the Father has given us. That is what restoration is all about. So we, we, we reaffirm our love for that person. We comfort them. You know, they're downtrodden, and we lift their spirits up, and we don't hang it over their head. Number four, second half of verse seven, says, um, otherwise such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. We do it in a timely manner. We do it in a timely manner. We, we restore that person, and, and we let them know that we love them, and we forgive them, and we comfort them in a timely manner. We don't wait. We don't wait. That stuff messes with people's minds, and they feel guilty, and they're worried about who's watching, and who's seeing this, and who's talking this, and who's saying that, and we need to do it in a timely manner. This is grace. This is the Apostle Paul who once hated Christians. Now he's a man of grace, and even in church discipline, we show grace. Amen? Amen. Verse 9. For to this end also I write, I wrote, so that I might put you to the test whether you are obedient in all things. There is a test for church leadership. There's a test for church leadership. There's a test for all churches, and that's church discipline. Will we be obedient? Will we be obedient? Um, Will we do it in a spirit of truth? Will we do it in a spirit of grace? Sin has to be challenged. Sin has to be challenged. There's a major church in South Carolina that really, a mega church here in Columbia, well, not in Columbia, they're all over South, all over South Carolina, but they, they took a monumental step a couple of years ago, and they had to remove their pastor from the pulpit. That took a lot of courage. That took a lot of courage. That took a lot for this elder board to step up and, and ask this pastor to step down because of what he was living in and what he was doing. It takes a lot of courage. It's a test. But if we're going to be faithful to God and we're going to be faithful to his word, as they were, and I applaud them for their decision because um, it took a lot of courage, um, we have to exercise church discipline we have to exercise this you know i'll just go ahead and debunk this right now church discipline is the ultimate act of love church discipline is the ultimate act of love it's the ultimate act of love it's it's saying that we care we love you we don't want you to wreck your life we're like my parents talking one of those 50 conversations my parents had with me throughout my high school years that i wouldn't listen we, we care, we love, we, we want you to do the right thing. It's the ultimate act of love. Verse 10, But one whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. For indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, I did it for your sake in the presence of Christ. Our ability to forgive is the evidence that we've been changed by grace is the evidence that we've been changed by grace. Our ability to, to forgive. Um, the world is watching. They know you're a believer. They know you go to church. They know you believe in Jesus. Let's see if he forgives that person or if he hangs this over that person and says, we got to be, we got to be forgiving people. we got to be giving to others what God has given to us in Christ. And it can be a challenge. It can be difficult. It may take some growing. It may take some 
discipleship. It may take some meditating in the word. It may take some worship. But we've got to get to a place where we can forgive other people just as God in Christ has forgiven us. Amazing, powerful gift that he's given us. It's called forgiveness. Verse 11, so that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. You know, Satan has schemes. Satan has schemes. There is a spiritual warfare taking place in the heavenlies for our hearts and minds. And Satan has schemes. And one of the greatest, according to this text, according to this passage right here, one of the greatest is unforgiveness. Is, is, is unforgiveness. How does Satan use unforgiveness? Our hearts. When we don't forgive people and, and, and we, we don't pardon them, our hearts grow cold. Our hearts grow cold. They grow cold. They grow hard. Um, we become bitter. We become angry. And most importantly, the way we become a pawn of Satan when we don't forgive is we disobey the Lord. We disobey God. Doesn't mean you don't forget. Doesn't mean that reconciliation and conversations have to take place. But ultimately, we have to come to a place of forgiveness. We have to come to a place of forgiveness. Maybe you're here this morning and you're struggling with forgiveness. You say, I, I got this area, this thing that happened in my life, and it eats me up, and I'm having a hard time forgiving this person. I'm having a hard time uh, exercising that gift of forgiveness. Yes, I've got the grace of God working in me, and I know I'm saved. I know I'm a follower of Jesus, but I'm having a difficult time forgiving that person. I'll give you two thoughts. Two thoughts if you're struggling with forgiveness. Number one is remember the sacrifice that Jesus made. Remember the sacrifice that he made and how he forgave you. You know, I, 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 I am so amazed. I got saved when I was 21, 1992, and I thought about all my rebellion. I thought about all my sin and all my rebellion, and I was like, I'm forgiven. But wait a minute, God. I did all those evil, evil, mean things to all those people right here in Irmo. This is where I grew up. This was my stomping grounds. But I go to the scripture, and it says I'm forgiven. And then there was people that I struggled as I grew in my Christian walk. There was people I struggled to forgive and to let go. And what helped me and gave me the ability to forgive was I remember how he forgave me at Calvary. We remember the cross. We remember the sacrifice he made at Golgotha. The perfect, sinless, perfect lamb of God who never knew no sin. It was like a funnel He's dying on the cross at Calvary and there's all the sin of the universe of all believers just funneling down on him. He took on the wrath of God so that we could be forgiven and I'm just blown away. I'm like, wow. He paid the price for my sin. If he can forgive me, I can find a way to forgive you and forgive anyone else. Secondly, if you're struggling with it mentally, is remember this, 
Forgiveness is a choice. Forgiveness is a choice. We, we have to make a decision. We, 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 we have to make a decision to forgive and move on. I, there's people in my family um, that I've, I talked to at Christmas time, and they're still wrestling with things that happened as a teenager. And I've tried to tell this family member, I'm like, sweetie, you got to let it go. You got to let it go. You got you to forgive and move on. You can't be letting this hang on to you for 30 years. I said, you've got to make a decision in your mind, I'm going to forgive this person and pray and ask the Holy Spirit to help your heart catch up and truly bring forgiveness. But it's a decision we make in our mind that we have to exercise and we have to do. So forgiveness is a powerful tool. It's powerful. And it's part of being a a man or woman of grace. Verse 12. Now, when I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ, when a door was opened for me in the Lord. You know what? As I read this verse, and there's there's a biblical principle here that I use in prayer. He says, when I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ, when a door was opened for me in the Lord. A lot of times when I pray and I'm seeking God's will and I'm saying, Lord, where do you want me to go? What do you want me to do? What do you want me to do with my resources, with my time, with my ministry? You know what I'll say? God, open the door. Open the door and show me. You're a sovereign over the universe. You rule and reign in the affairs of all men and women. And I'll just simply say, God, open the door and I will follow. We, I don't know how many times we've prayed that with this building and this church. We've prayed that. We've said that prayer probably 50 times. We're facing decisions. About 300 decisions. God, we need you. Shut the doors. Open the doors. Uh, open the doors. We're going to step through. Shut the doors. We're going to go somewhere else. But it's a perfectly, I believe, a legitimate way to ask God when you're seeking an answer. Lord, open the door. Where do you want me to go? Young people, God, where do you want me to go to college? You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to apply at Clemson. I'm going to apply at USC. I'm going to apply at Wofford. Now, God, you open the door. And don't go to Clemson. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. I'm just kidding. Uh, but, Lord, you open the doors. You open the doors and tell me where you want me to go. Lord, you open the doors. What ministry do you want me to be involved in? Lord, I want to disciple someone. I, I, I want to... Uh, Pour into someone else's life. I want to be effective and useful for your kingdom. Pray, God, open the door. Bring that person into my life. He'll do it. He'll do it. Sometimes we, we pray that prayer. Sometimes we pray that prayer, and we just, we just kind of throw it up, and then it really happens, and we're like, oh my goodness, that really works. <laughs> well, fine, it works. It works, but there's a biblical principle there in prayer. God, open the doors and close the doors. Verse 13. Uh, Paul says, I had no rest for my spirit, not finding Titus, my brother, but taking my leave of them, I went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. Now, he wanted to see Titus, but Titus wasn't there. So what did Paul do? He said, you know what? God is sovereign. God is sovereign, and he leads me in triumph. This is our joy as a believer in Jesus. 
This is, this is your joy as a believer in Jesus. This is uh, your confidence as a believer in Jesus Christ that he leads you in triumph, that he is sovereign. He is the commander. You know, most likely the Apostle Paul, when he says he leads us in triumph, most likely he had a Roman triumph in mind where Roman generals, after they defeated a city, they would come back to their city and they would have a parade. They would have a parade, a victory parade, to show, look at what we've done. Look at what we've done. Now, some of us as Christians, we follow Jesus in that parade, and we, we get on the parade float, and we, we do it with joy, and we move forward with him. Some of us are like those tin cans that they tie on the back of a car at a wedding. You know, and they're, they're get, you're getting drugged. He's, he's sovereign. He's leading you in triumph, but you're not doing things right and you're being drugged behind. You just need to do the right thing and get on board and follow him and let him lead you in triumph because he is our commander-in-chief. He is sovereign, and he leads us, and that is our joy. That is our confidence. That is when you're like, uh, I don't know what's going on in life. Deep in your heart, you say, God, you're sovereign. You are completely sovereign. You know every speck throughout this universe. You know every planet, every galaxy in motion, everything in motion, and you're sovereign, and I'm going to trust in you. That's our anchor. That's our joy. That's our confidence. Verse 15, for we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, an aroma from death to death. To another, the aroma from life to to life and who is adequate for these things here's the deal we witness to this world as christians as pilgrims passing through we are witnesses to people of the lord jesus christ of his death his resurrection his glorious return and it says that's what we are but then the passage here says there's two separate people there though it says, it says there um, in verse 16, it says, To one, an aroma from death to death. When people reject Christ, when they reject the gospel, they're bringing judgment. They're bringing judgment. They're bringing condemnation. You know, I, I witnessed to people before, and they'll be like, no thanks, um, uh, I'm not interested, or uh, I don't want to hear about your Christianity. You know what I'll tell them? I'll, I'll plead with them. I'll plead with them, and I'll humbly ask them, like, dude, please consider these claims. Think about this, my friend. How long are you going to be gone for when you leave this life? How long are you going to be gone for? And they'll be like, forever. I'm like, yes. Your decision now in this very short, brief life will determine whether you spend eternity in heaven or an eternity in hell. I tell them, I tell them, man, just please think about this long and hard. There's nothing more important than your eternal salvation. We're an aroma. We should stir people's hearts. To one group of people, it's like we're a symbol of judgment. 
because we remind them of Christianity and the Lord Jesus Christ. But to the other group of people, in verse 16 also, it says, to the other, an aroma of life. This is the people that receive, believe, and are blessed. They're an aroma from life to life. Um, back around 05 or 06, I was uh, doing border patrol out in Arizona um, with the National Guard. Got one weekend off. It had been a rough, it had been a rough month. Just got hammered really hard, just tired, drained, just emotionally spent, spiritually dry, just, uh, I could I could have just went back to the hotel and slept. I said, you know what, I'm going to go to church. I drove up to um, Phoenix, Arizona, and I saw this church. It said, Calvary Chapel. Never even heard of a Calvary Chapel. This was, this was the first time I ever walked into a Calvary Chapel. Never been to one before. This was what, this was where God and his sovereignty led me, and I came home. We started becoming part of the Calvary Chapel movement. Was uh, I went to Calvary Chapel, and I wept that morning. <laughs> I wept in church that morning. People were like, do you need to get saved? I'm like, no. You just don't know how awesome it is to be here. To hear all these people worshiping the Lord and praising him. And to see this pastor come out. And I, 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 I still remember the message to this day. He was teaching out of uh, 1 Thessalonians on the rapture. It was just like an aroma of life. It lifted me up. Just being with other Christians, being with other believers in this place. I was so lifted up and I was so blessed by the teaching. I went to Carabas after there. And I remember I called Irene. She was at lunch after she got done with her church service at some restaurant here in Columbia. I'm in Arizona. I said, we are finding a Calvary Chapel when I get home. It was so refreshing. That's what church should be about. That's what we should be about. That's what our relationship should be about here. We come and we get lifted up, and we are the aroma of life to each other and to those people in the world who will open their hearts to Jesus Christ. We open their hearts and their minds and their lives to eternal life, to a blessed life. There's no greater adventure than living out the Christian life. It's a blessed life. To, to one, the aroma of death, judgment, people that reject, judgment, condemnation. We are, as Christians, we're a reminder of Christianity. We're a reminder of the cross. We're a reminder of a future judgment that's coming. But to others, we're the aroma of life. We bring, bring life. The gospel splits all humanity into two categories, saved and unsaved, and there is no other category. There is no purgatory. There is no on the fence. There is none of that. It's an, it's an amazing gospel that we should love and we should cherish. And when our hearts are changed by grace, it comes to life. Amen? Amen. Verse 17, let's finish this up. For we are not like many peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, but as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. Verse 17, 
he says, he talks about peddling the word of God. Peddling means making money. The church is not a place to make money. Um, the, the church is, is not a, a Ponzi. It's not a, a money-making machine. It, money should, never, should not be the focus. Jesus should be the focus. And it's a sin for any pastor, any church, to, to put their focus on money, to put their focus on mammon. That's, that's idolatry. And it's a sin, and it's wrong. The focus of the local church, whether you're Baptist, Assemblies of God, or Calvary Chapel, or whatever denomination you're a part of, whatever church you're a part of, the focus should always be on Jesus Christ. We don't peddle the word of God. We don't use this Bible to make money. We use it to make disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. We use this Bible to minister to people and, and to bring life and to bring forgiveness and to bring wholeness and to bring healing to people. We're not a business. I'm not a CEO. I'm not a corporate exec. I'm not the head honcho. I'm not the man in charge. I'm the pastor. I'm, a sh I'm the shepherd. That's, that's, my, that's, my, that's my job title, is pastor, shepherd, overseer in the body of Christ. I close with this thought right here. Pleasing God was the consuming passion of Paul's heart. Is it yours? Is it yours? Is it yours? I've been there, man. I've been where you are. I've been a pastor four, going on five years, four or five years now. But I, I've lived out the Christian life for 20 years in the workplace, doing life with friends and family and loved ones and going through the rigmaroles of life. We have uh, hilltops and we have valleys. And there's been seasons in my life where I was on fire there's been seasons in my life where just kind of blase. Where are you at this morning? Where are you at? Where, where, where is your heart? I pray that this Christmas season, that through the preaching of God's word this morning, through the teaching of God's word, he'll set your heart on fire for him. That I'm, I'm hoping that there's these, there's these little flames inside of each, inside of each and every one of you. There's this little flame burning. And I hope for charity, I'm, I'm poking that flame with God's word. I'm poking that flame and I'm saying, get on fire for the things of God. Let it consume you. Be a person of grace. Read this book. You should, you should read your Bible every single day. Every single day. Shouldn't be a day goes by. I'm not going to dictate to you what time or how long, but just carve a little bit out of carve some time of your day, morning, evening, whenever, and just get into the Word. And as you get into the Word, ask the Holy Spirit, say, Lord, set a fire. Set a fire in my soul. And let me be like Paul. And then you'll see his passion when he talks about his sorrow and his anguish. You'll understand that same sorrow and that same anguish when you're discipling someone and your heart goes out to them and you want to minister to them. Amen? Let's pray.
Father God in heaven, thank you for what you have shown us in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Let us be people of grace. Holy Spirit, we just ask you. We come to you, Heavenly Father, and we ask you. Help us to make a deep commitment this morning to walk in grace to walk in truth, to walk in sincerity of, of our life, of our ministries, of our families. You're an awesome God. Do your work, Lord, in our hearts and minds. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.